0: Welcome to DevCast, brought to you by Deverell Smith, the right people. DevCast is where property meets people, industry figures, news and views, what it takes to be your best. So sit back, earphones on and enjoy this edition of DevCast. And welcome to Devcast, Devril Smith's audio series, which holds exclusive and thought provoking interviews with property professionals from around the world. My name is Andrew Devril Smith. I'm the CEO and founder of Devril Smith. And today I'll be joined by co founder of London based real estate developer Finn Chatton. He's also co founder of the investment platform Capital Rise. His name is Alex Michelin. Alex has a hand in both the development and the interior design side of all of Finn projects, the latest flagship. Uh, scheme being 20 Grosvenor Square, the world's first standalone Four Seasons private residences, I believe. Uh, In this episode, we'll be discussing the luxury markets of Resi, particularly predictions on what happens in 2021 and what he looks for in talent. So, um, Alex, I can't thank you
1: enough. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. Very well and nice to be on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: You, you, you actually, just when we were warming up, you told me you're very tired because I would gather there's um, there's an arrival, imminent
1: arrival. There is. Baby number three is uh, potentially due on Monday. So, yeah, um, sleep is a, a short commodity at the moment. Well, <laughs> if you
0: have to go, we'll understand. So, um, Thanks. <laughs> you know, but, uh, honestly, thank you so much for joining me. So, um, Alex, I mean, look, I am a I'm a big, big fan of yours and your firm. So I really am. Um, what you do is incredible and we're going to talk about that hopefully but before we do I'm I'm always interested to know the story before the property industry what what, what who was Alex before real estate
1: oh that's, that's uh you know a nice easy question to start with hopefully um so I was born in the Caribbean bizarrely which I know is a sort of a long way to go back but my father uh was a hotel developer. Um, so he started out just being a hotel manager and then he started developing very small hotels in the Caribbean. But nevertheless, I sort of grew up, you know, trailing sites in, in you know, Antigua and Jamaica with him, looking at kind of what we could do there. And he would tell me what his vision was. So I guess I sort of always had that sort of property gene in me. Um, after university, though, I did go into investment banking um, straight away uh, and did that for sort of four or five years working in corporate finance. Uh, which was great fun. And, you know, the hours were incredibly long uh, and certainly gave me a good work ethic. Um, but but then, you know, that that's kind of what I did before. And then I left that to found Finch Hatton with my business partner, Andrew Dunn.
0: Um,
1: so what age? What age were you when, when you founded? Uh, we did it. We, we, it was 2001. So uh, I think I was around 24. Yeah, it was, was pretty young. My God. And
0: and so I guess
1: I didn't know that about. So I didn't know about
0: your dad and, and the Caribbean. And so just diving into that a little bit more.
1: What um, what did he build? You know, what 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 did you get to see? What... So, so he built um, a few hotels. He, he built a, a sort of regenerated hotel called Hawksbill in Antigua in kind of the 80s. And it became, you know, one of the kind of top resorts, I guess, in the Caribbean for a while. Uh, he didn't own it. He was just the manager, but he was forever adding rooms and adding a new wing and another great house. And he's sort of one of these guys that that has this vision. And, and it's amazing, you know, when you grow up in that sort of fertile, fertile environment, um, you know, with him sort of sharing everything with me, you know, how much he was spending, what the, what the profit and loss was on, on that sort of it. You know, it just I mean, at the time I was pretty bored out of my mind, you know, at sort of 10, 10, 12 years old. But, um, but, you know, I, th- I think it's stuck in there. And I think, you know, I, I bring some of that training for want to better when we when we started the property business, it was sort of, uh, you know, it was in the blood, I, I did feel like it came very naturally. And it's just something I absolutely love. I mean, I think a lot of people love property, but for me, you know, really, as a passion, you know, when I when I go to work, it doesn't feel like work, genuinely. Uh, obviously, we all have our days, but but I just love what I do. So,
0: well, that's clear. And um and and it, whilst your story is everybody's story is u- unique and and that there's yours is unique but it's not it's not something I haven't heard before you know young young kid boy or girl sort of you know running around behind mum or dad who 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 um, had a stellar career doing this um, what did you learn in investment banking that you've taken into real estate.
1: Great, great question. I mean, I have to say I was very fortunate because um, in, in the time that I went into investment banking, they, they spent a huge amount of money on your education when you first arrived. I was on this sort of fast track management program um, and, and they must have spent literally a 100 grand, you know, on my education over the sort of four or five years I was there. Um, you know, it was ugh, we learned about maths, bond maths, how to analyze risk, risk and risk free rates, how to value the stock market you know, how to read balance sheets and profit and loss accounts. I mean, they really taught you an awful lot, um, which obviously, you know, you were to use in your career in, in, in the bank. Um, and so when I left, um, you know, I had, I had a pretty good knowledge about business, uh, you know, debt, uh, equity, how to leverage a company, how to leverage a property asset. Um, and I also had done uh, a lot of modeling. So I was, I was quite good at Excel. Uh, And so they trained me to do a lot of modeling, cash flow modeling, looking at sort of net present value. Um, And and I'll tell you a funny story. You know, the the first appraisal that we did for, um, you know, it was a Clydesdale bank manager. I I won't say uh, who it was, but I sort of turned up in his office thinking, you know, I'm, I'm 24, 25, maybe, maybe it was but 24, 25 ish. And and I you know he's going to think what does this guy know so I have to really impress him with my with my pack so I'd done you know a sort of corporate finance pack which is probably thirty slides long and had a full cash flow model going out the kind of fourteen months of the, that project and he looked at me like I was sort of talking Greek and he basically said you know normally I get one side of A4 <laughs> from most of my other developers so I realized pretty quickly that you know residential development in in kind of you know two thousand and one. Um, was not that sophisticated. I'm sure the bigger guys obviously were doing a lot more sophisticated stuff but we started pretty small doing you know one flat here or there in Mayfair and Belgravia or whatever Uh, and these guys were just not used to seeing sort of proper financial analysis you know I'd sensitize what would happen if the property market fell you know we'd looked at all the comparative data of kind of every project on that street for the last 10 years what had happened how the prices had fared you know so we really had a lot of you know and obviously he he gave us the loan so it worked but um, but it was quite a funny chat he was literally sort of shocked by this thing it was just like oh my god he, i'm not sure he read it all but um, but he gave us the loan
0: brilliant brilliant uh, and, and tell
1: tell me about your relationship with andrew so you were partners from day one were you you, you founded the company we were yeah so we went to school together we were at charterhouse together um which is a school down in surrey and uh, we were great mates at school and then we went to different unis um just as you do but we reconnected in london obviously um, and we're hanging out and having beers and, and he was working for a property developer at the time. Um, right. And, you know, he basically won lunch. I remember on a Sunday, um, you know, we had a few drinks and he said, look, I'm working for this guy. You know, I think he's making quite a lot of money, but he doesn't have a clue. You know, he's sort of all over the place. He's really disorganized. He, he sort of apparently was running the whole business out of his briefcase, didn't have an office, you know, was kind of doing it out of the back of his car. Uh, but still doing OK. Um, and Andrew was convinced that if we brought some sort of professionalism to that sector, um, you know, we could we could really do well. And and so I started writing a business plan with him. We sort of agreed to do it. We started writing a business plan. Um, and then my catalyst was I said, look, if, if we can raise some money uh, so that we can kind of get off to a start, then then I'll I'll leave. You know, I'll leave my job and you leave yours and, and let's do it. So, so said, so done. We kind of traipsed around for a bit, um, you know, while I had the day job. Uh, trying to raise some capital from various friends and family Um, we duly did raise some and um, you know we we both uh, resigned from our jobs and and started in uh, January the 15th yeah so it was um, yeah good good times really good times and he's been a great firm friend obviously ever since Um, and we split the business pretty much down the middle I mean we both do everything I would say but I'm more naturally uh i guess inclined on the financial side probably you know the investment banking background And i think he's more naturally inclined on the construction uh management and sort of running the sites and managing the builders which which he does well so um so that's worked really well and i just do a bit more of the finance and he does a bit of that but you know we both run our own projects um and we both are involved in every decision to be honest we're, we're incredible control freaks uh, and at times that, that comes with a lot of stress um, because you're just all over all the detail and, and that's important. But I think, you know, no company becomes successful without that sort of level of, of you know, analysis into the detail.
0: I agree. Tell me about uh, that, that first project in more detail. So you raised a bit of money from friends and family. The Clydesdale bank manager, uh, like the look of you and your business plan.
1: Yeah, so, so basically our thesis was always look, we felt that, you know, you probably remember Andrew, but you know, property in London in the 80s, sorry, in the 80s, in the 2000s, I know it sounds a bit a bit sort of crazy to say now, but they were pretty bad, right? I mean, heating was awful and old, you know, creaky pipes, you know, the water pressure would be a dribble at best out of the shower. I mean, you know, it was the good old sort of British, you know, property, you know, stiff up a lip and all that and just get on with it. It really wasn't an international standard. Uh, And I think what we both saw, and I saw a lot for in my investment banking, was this sort of huge wealth coming to London from all over the world. And they they sort of couldn't find the right real estate. So we always took the view. And again, this was based on a lot of analysis, which I won't bore you with here. But we we took the view that the best part of the market to play in was the very top end, because that's where you were getting the highest price per foot on the exit. And yet the build costs didn't really vary that much from, say, building something, you know, in outer boroughs of London. So we always had this premise that we wanted to Focus on the very, very top in the very best locations, um, and just try to provide a turnkey product for someone. Because again, we took the analysis of you know when you went to buy your fantastic new car from you know ben, from uh, BMW, let's say or Mercedes, you know you, you weren't expected to know which air conditioner you should be putting in, and you know uh, what sort of engine you should be having. You know, I mean, obviously some people do, but you know what I mean. When you do your house. You know, you're often tasked with, okay, what, what water pressure do you want? What electrical system do you want? I mean, how do you know these things? So we thought that we're just going to take all of that away, create a turnkey home where, a bit like Mercedes or whatever, uh, everything is done for you and it's absolutely the best. Um, so we bought this flat in Mayfair. It was a ground and lower ground. It took us a long time to find it. I must, you know, we started in, in January, as I say, and we probably, I don't think we bought our first place until July, August. I mean, we, we spent a long time, Looking and scouring the market to make sure we weren't making a bad decision. Uh, anyway, bought this flat um, from memory. It was about a thousand square feet. I think it was twelve hundred square feet, ground and lower ground in Mayfair, number nine Green Street. There you go. Very famous, famous address now. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> and we extended it. We we gutted it completely. Gutted it. We put a sort of jacuzzi type pool into the small garden. It had. Uh, which was again a moment i'll never forget when you know one sunday we have closed all the roads at mayfair we're craning a pool over mayfair and it's sort of swaying in the wind <laughs> and i'm thinking oh my god what are we doing uh, but it got in safely thank god um and yeah and, and and sort of that sold pretty well um you know and from there we were off to the races we didn't make a huge amount of money on the first one we we, we did okay uh you know the builders Tried to have a pop at us as as they do, seeing a couple of young lads. Um, I think they thought they could they could have a go, um, but you know we had done everything properly. We'd sort of read our contracts, and we we sort of managed to fight that off. Um, and yeah, as I say, made a bit of money, and then that gave us the confidence to say, okay, right. And the investors the confidence to say, okay, off you go, have a, have another one, um, and then we did another one, and and then it sort of snowballed from there. And obviously now we're doing you know, a project that's 1.5 billion uh, pounds of, of development value, 139 apartments, you know, a million square feet in, in one block. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a good, it's been a good run. It's been an incredible story.
0: I, I would say, what, what did you learn in those early days around what not to do? Because you must uh, have you made mistakes, right? You must have, you must Oh, have.
1: oh yeah, we, we made, we made, you know, thousands of mistakes, um, for sure. Um, what did we learn not to do? Um, I think we sort of probably on the first projects we we overcomplicated things too much. I think we went too far trying to make everything too perfect. And I think we realized that actually it's very, very costly, very, very time consuming. And a lot of the time the buyers actually kind of want more simplicity in, in their in their you know homes and in their layouts. Um, you know, we would put in all the toys and all the gadgets and all the sort of things. And we probably realized that actually a lot of people want simplicity and they just want a light switch that works. And. You know, they don't have to kind of push 17 buttons and use a voice recognition to get the TV on. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that was, you know, one of the early things we learned. Um, and I think we learned how to finance things, you know, uh, pretty well. I mean, we made some mistakes on the way we finance things and we, we probably didn't lever enough. We were too conservative initially, therefore used way too much equity in our first deals, um, which meant we couldn't expand the business as fast as maybe we, we should have um so you know you, you learn every single step of the way and we have an ethos in the business we say every day's a school day you know we say that today you know every day you're going to be learning something you know we, we by no means know it all i mean obviously you have a bit more experience but you know every day i learn something new and, and things change you know the, the great thing about real estate is taste change you know things change look at the covid right what, what has that done to the real estate market obviously made seismic shifts you know very very quickly um so you're always learning
0: Um, So that's my next question. What has COVID done to the real estate? Let's put it in a smaller box, luxury residential of the world.
1: um, Yeah, it's a good segue. So I think what we are seeing from our sort of client base is that um, COVID has made people really appreciate their homes more. uh, And that's been good for us in many ways. So people are now really appreciating the fact that, you know, we for a very long time insisted that everything we do must have outside space, for example. Uh, you know, it's just one of the boxes we always want to tick. You know, we won't do a development if we can't make the flats have outside space. So little things like that, you know, that is becoming an absolute must-have. People previously said, Oh, it'd be nice if I could have a terrace. Now I think it's, you know, at our end of the market, it's a must-have. Um, and I think, you know, all of those things, people now need a, an office, you know, the obvious ones at home. People need exceptional broadband at home. Um, all of these things. And, and then I think it goes further in that most people now would like to have a gym at home. You know, wellness and health has become such a big thing put into laser focus by COVID um, that most people insist now on having a gym at home um, as well. So, you know, all, all of those sorts of shifts.
0: So do all of these things mean that you now need to build bigger units? I mean, or do you squeeze more into the same Chunk no, I,
1: th- I think that's right. I think, you know, we're, we're trying to cram more into the units um, and probably doing slightly bigger ones um, as a result um, because people are spending a lot more time at home and they will do in the future. You know, we're all working from home a lot more. Um, people want a separate office. They can close it off from the kids. It's a bit more soundproof. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're doing, you know, we're, again, we're insisting that there's a workspace in the house somewhere, which is private. Uh, we're insisting on outside space. Ideally, we want a gym if we can get it. Now, obviously, that's not always possible. But a lot of what we do now is in, as you know, multi-unit flats. Uh, and then we will always put in a, a very, very good gym in the, in the basement or somewhere in the development, often a pool uh, as well. Um, and then I think the other thing we're seeing, you know, in Grosvenor Square, we had a guy, for example, um, you know, a very wealthy guy, and he had a beautiful flat in London, um, but it didn't have any servicing or outside space. And what he found during lockdown is he was stuck in this flat, he had a lot of money, but actually couldn't live the life that he wanted to lead. Uh, so he came into our scheme at 20 Grosvenor Square, which has, you know, 25 meter pool, is fully serviced by the Four Seasons, an incredible gym, and spoke to a couple of the residents there who had, who had explained to that you know, in lockdown, they would, you know, because it's private, there would be one person in the gym as if it was a private gym and the Four Seasons would come and fully defumigate the space so then the other person could go in. And so they were, you know, those guys in our building were living you know, relatively normal lives during lockdown, whereas he, you know, despite having all his wealth, just couldn't live the life he wanted to. So, you know, he came in and bought a flat um, in our development for, for, you know, a lot of money, because again, you know, they just, people say, well, I'm only gonna be on this planet for a certain number of years, and I might as well live the best possible quality of life I can while I'm here. Uh, and I think people will feel that more and more, as, as I say, we're spending more time at home. You know, you want your home to be absolutely fantastic. Yeah,
0: completely. I, mean, I yeah, we've all, we've all had a good look at our own four walls, haven't we, and decided yeah. what we'd change or, or just to get, get the hell out and, and try something else. Yeah, definitely. Um, at what point in your career, Alex, did you go from, uh, and hopefully I'm not using the wrong language, but a, a sort of redesigner and refurbisher of, of existing units to a builder of bl-
1: blocks of units? How long did that take? Yeah, a Good question. Um, and again, that was sort of part of what I was alluding to when I think we, we sort of probably didn't expand quick enough. Um, it took us at least a decade um, before we really did anything of, of sort of great scale, I would say, more than sort of one unit um, or a couple of units in a building. Uh, I mean, London, as most of your listeners will know, uh, is is sort of a listed city. It's so old you can't demolish typically a lot of these buildings. They're, they're beautiful and, and um, historic and landmarks, as they call them in, in the U.S., um, so you refurbish what's inside. But, but as we got bigger and we were doing, you know, sort of 10 little apartments, as it were, little refurbs across London, um, w- we thought, you know what, the, the sort of return on effort is significantly higher if you can get those 10 apartments in one building. Um, and so that's when we, we then went and did sort of bigger buildings, you know, our first one being Montpellier Hall in Knightsbridge. Um, where we did uh, I think it was seven I'm pretty sure it was seven apartments large lateral you know sort of amazing apartments in there with parking underneath um, and that was kind of when we realized you know wow this is this is sort of as hard you know as doing a smaller one but obviously you get so much more uh, for the time you're putting in um, so, so that was a sort of epiphany but you know to be honest as well and I guess it's sort of making myself feel better about why we took us so long. Um, you need a lot of capital to do those bigger buildings. You know, it's not the kind of thing you can just go with, you know, a couple of million quid. Even that's a lot of capital, and and do you know these bigger buildings are often tens and tens of millions. Uh, and so to be fair to us, I think you, you, we needed to have that track record because when you go to the bank and you want a couple of million on on a beautiful flat somewhere in Mayfair, um, that's one thing. But you go up to a sort of slightly um, higher guy in the bank's uh, hierarchy when you need, you know, 30 million to do a multi-unit development in uh, in Knightsbridge or whatever. So um, that, that took us a while, um, but once we started that, that was clearly, you know, where we wanted to go. And, and we, we very quickly, you know, did sort of from there grow to doing, you know, as you say, Grosvenor Square, which is our flagship at the moment. And, you know, is an 850 million GDV development um, in the heart of Mayfair.
0: And how has that been with, you know, I mean, it's been a weird old world, has it not? I mean, it can, maybe it continues to be, but we've had Brexit for what for me felt like quite a long time. And then 2020 came along and we all know that story. So how has it been, you know, with a one and a half billion quid scheme, you know, genuinely, genuinely world-class, right? Um, sitting on, you know, the, you know, the square of London. I guess going into that project, you you weren't forecasting Brexit. No,
1: no we weren't. And I mean, you know, we, we came out of the great financial crisis. I'm pleased to say, pretty well and unscathed, because we'd always been pretty conservative in our leverage, and in our assumptions about sales price. So, kind of, we bought that building, um, you know, pretty much out of NAMA. Um, it was in the the asset management program of, of sort of the Irish banks. If for those of you who don't know what NAMA is. Um, and and we bought that out of NAMA, um, and, and I just knew we were buying it really really well. Uh, we were, we bought it uh, and paid sixteen hundred pounds per square foot on the consented area. It already had a planning consent, and I knew we could make that consent better and probably get a bit more. And in Mayfair, as you'll know, Andrew, you know it's pretty difficult to buy anything for fifteen hundred quid a foot, let alone, you know, the best building on the best square. Uh, you know, facing southwest, I mean, it's sort of on the best corner next to the U.S. embassy. You know, it really was the kind of absolute blue chip gem. And so I guess that's why we had the, you know, the, the courage uh, and maybe the craziness <laughs> to, to buy it, when I think a lot of other people were sort of still licking their wounds after the financial crisis. Um, and as you will know, for the first few years, the market in London absolutely boomed. So until about 2000, the end of 2014, and we bought that building in 2013, um, you know, the market just boomed and probably went up 15%. So we were sort of sitting pretty. Then the government brought in stamp duty increase and that sort of uh, put the brakes on the market. And then as you say, Brexit came in. But, but you know, the fundamentals in real estate, which, you know, is, is something I hope some of your listeners can take from this is, is you make your money when you buy the asset. And, and I know that sounds sort of obvious, but, you know, you'll understand what I mean. When you purchase, if you purchase it right and you don't pay too much for the land, you will not lose money on your development. If you pay too much from day one, you're always, always scratching around. You're then gonna to have to get more debt. You know, the costs are gonna increase. You're gonna have more leverage. You're gonna have higher interest costs. You know, it sort of is a, a, a bad spiral to get into. If you don't pay too much for the land and you get it for the right price and the site for the right price, you know, as long as you, you know, manage the half well, the development, you're gonna come out okay. So I guess we've seen this incredibly turbulent time, as you say, um, but the project has still been you know, a, a, a wonderful success. I mean, we're, we're thrilled. It's just, and what we did because we had just had the financial crisis is we said to ourselves, the market could turn and we need to make sure that this is absolutely the very, very best asset that's ever been built in London. You know, we wanted it to be the very best residential building to have ever been built. And so we made sure the amenity is the best that has ever been, you know, no other development up until that point had a 25 meter pool. No other development had the gym that we have I and mean, you should see it it's absolutely you know unbelievable we have a crash for children we have a spa where you can have a massage we have you know wonderful car parking facilities all with electric supercharging points so you know we thought about all of that you know it's just it just ticks the box um, for, mm-hmm. for everyone uh, I think and it's it's south facing on you know as I say the best location and the best square in Mayfair which is you know arguably the best location in London um, and then what we did on top of that, we said, we've got to have the best servicing because we realized that the, the trend was really about servicing. So we brought in Four Seasons, who we perceive to be you know, the best servicing brand in the world. Um, and you're right when you said, you know, it's the first standalone Four Seasons residences anywhere that has been completed. And we're very proud of that. Um, and I think that is what has allowed us to ride out, you know, a, a bad market um, and still attain some, you know, record breaking prices because people, you know, there's always someone in the world with a billion quid or billion dollars, and they want the best. They want the best, and if you deliver them the absolute best, uh, they will pay for it. You know, even in rocky times. And I, and I guess we've, you know, our development is a testament to that.
0: Well, I think that's as an as a as a um, you know a spectator, if you like. I mean, my job's to watch who's doing what, and I think that's been the consistent theme to, to describe you guys, Fin Chatterton, as just standards. You know, and 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 we met a long time ago, and 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 you were very clear with me then, and un, 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 um, unyielding in terms of what your your expectations were, and and that's brilliant. You know, I, I have huge admiration for you and your team. So, can you let let? I don't know whether you answer this or not, but if let's just presume I'm I've got a bit of a budget. I can't buy the penthouse, but I might be able to get my hands on a two bed, you know, nice two bedroom flat in that. Uh, apartment in your in your building what does what would I be looking at in terms of running costs and service charge to be to be looked after to that
1: degree yeah so it's um it's a great question we we again uh you know are really um focused on our service charge because it's one of the things that I think a lot of developers forget uh to to sort of manage and they they think well it doesn't matter these guys have enough money and they'll they'll pay the service charge you know, we find it really annoying uh, to have a big service charge. So we focus very ca- carefully when we design the building to make sure it doesn't have to be overstaffed. And we make sure we put in systems in terms of mechanical and electrical systems that are very, very low to operate, low cost to operate. Um, so you'd actually be amazed to find that our service charge in Grosvenor Square is about £11.75 pence per square foot. Um, and that compares to... Um, one Nine Nine, the Knightsbridge, or One Hyde Park, which are probably well over twenty pounds a foot. Um, and despite that, we have the Four Seasons, and we have all of these these things. So we we have been really focused on keeping service charge down. And a lot of people have been amazed, actually, how reasonable uh, the service charge is. But but you know, eleven pounds is still quite a lot. And to answer your question, you know, a two bed, let's say it's a thousand square feet. You know, you're probably talking about eleven thousand pounds a year. Uh, of service charges, not um, you know, it's not insignificant, but
0: uh... no, no, but, but but I could cry when I think about the office market and the service charges that we're um, that, that, that we will have to pay. And...
1: Yeah, the... and I think we've got to remember also, it's a, it, it's a global market, London, and and you know, one thing we must remember is New York has unbelievable service charges; they're very very high, and often for service which is not all that good. Some some of the best buildings are, and also in say Hong Kong. Uh, and, and these other areas, so a lot of London's a very international city so our, in our buyers are typically benchmarking us against those other locations. Um, and you know we, we fare very well, I think London as a whole on that, you know, we don't have a, a, a tax, for example, an annual tax that you have in New York on your property.
0: Can I ask you so you you'll you can see the end I guess of the four seasons it's built It's looking beautiful you've sold a lot of the units. What yeah, we, only
1: have a, we only have we only have a few left in that one, uh, which is great. Um, and we have our next our next scheme is is the Whiteley, um, which is a very large development in, in West London uh, near Notting Hill uh, and just by Hyde Park there. Uh, and for those who don't know, the Whiteley was, um, you know, London's first uh, luxury shopping center that had ever been built. It was first built in 1911 or opened in 1911, I should say, built in in the late 1800s, uh, but opened in 1911. Uh, and it's just this fabulous building. It's an entire city block. I mean, it's beautiful facade with statues adorning it and all these lovely details of the era. Uh, but it had, for whatever reason, um, become a rather unloved shopping center in, in, you know, sort of latter part of its life, uh, let's say sort of five, five, ten years ago. Um, and we have um, teamed up with um, a company called Mayor Bergman, who are now rebranded as Mark and, and another uh, investor called CC Land. Um, and we are uh, together redeveloping that scheme to be a, a new quarter for London. And that's really exciting. So it's it's one point one million square feet. Uh, an entire city block we're, we're putting in a hotel, which will have 110 rooms. Um, we're gonna have about 18 shops and retail outlets as well as restaurants and bars. Um, and then it's got 139 private residential apartments. Um, the hotel is being run by six senses. So that will be yeah. their flagship landmark hotel in London, which we're really excited about. And They are completely on brand for us because their focus is all about wellness, um, ecological, uh, credentials and making sure that you know their their um, ecological footprint is as small as it can be uh, and so all of the residents who buy in our building will benefit from not only this incredible array of amenities which i won't bore your listeners with but it you know, includes a pool a gym a spa a, uh, you know music room a dj room i mean we, you know it's really fantastic um, it's got a paddle court Um, which I hope to be able to use, Uh, but you also get this sixth sense of lifestyle, um, you know, they can provide food, they can provide dog walking, you know, they can clean your apartment, they can do turndown service, so again, it's sort of, we believe, tapping into what the future of of sort of London Residential is going to be, um, which is this incredible service level, um, where you, you, you know, genuinely probably don't need to leave your apartment, you know, we're putting in gigabyte per second broadband so when you when you move in you will have one gigabyte per second of broadband as standard you can then upgrade it from there Um, and you know for those sort of technophobes out there that that sort of you know downloading a high-def movie in i think about a minute (laughs) you know it's it's but that's what people want you know and again these offices we're going to have office co-working spaces in there so people can work from the Whiteley. so it really is a wonderful development to be involved with and and we're very excited about it
0: and I guess that might be a bit of a different look for you guys. Just, it, it's a different part of
1: town, and I guess you're appealing to a different demographic. It will still be luxurious, I'm sure. But Yeah, it's a very, very good point, uh, Andrew, and, and yes, it will be. So it's, it's, it's sort of um, apartments there start from about a million pounds and, and go up to sort of 50 million. So the big, diverse range of, of people who buy there. So the aesthetic is definitely much more uh, pared back, much more modern uh, and contemporary. Um, and probably sort of a little bit less Mayfair, a little bit more Notting Hill (laughs) and eclectic in terms of its look and feel. But what what really sets that development apart is just the volumes. I mean, because we have this listed facade, you know, we're we're talking about volumes in the apartments that are, you know, four meter ceiling heights in some of these apartments, six meters in, in others. I mean, you know, six meter ceiling heights in your reception room, you know, they just don't build them like that anymore.
0: I was lucky enough to go, I don't know, five or six years ago when um, uh, the, the deal was first done. And, and it was the offices, if you remember, um, yeah. was in there. And, and yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the windows and the ceilings, was, I've never seen it. I haven't seen a resi scheme.
1: No, there, there is definitely nothing like it. There is definitely nothing like it. And I think that is what is so exciting for me is that, you know, you're going to walk into those spaces and they're truly. Ordinary. And I go into them and I'm just like, wow. And obviously, I've seen a lot of residential. I mean, they are truly exceptional. Uh, so I, I do think it's unique. And I think that part of London really needs uh, something exciting to, to happen to it. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're sort of 300 yards from the park as well, which you mustn't forget. So, you know, you come out of your door and you're in Hyde Park, the biggest and most beautiful park in London. Um, so it's a great spot. I have to challenge. Is it the biggest? Is it the biggest? It, that I Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hyde Park is the biggest park.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so I live by Richmond Park, you see, and I happen to... Oh, of-
1: other than Richmond Park. Sorry, in <laughs> central London. Yeah, other than Richmond Park. Sorry, in central London, yeah. Is, is uh, Richmond uh, London? I'm not sure Richmond's...
0: <laughs> listen, I don't want to have a park off with you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit dodgy.
1: But look, you're
0: um so super successful property developer. A, a few years back, you launched another incredible and very interesting business, which I know less about, Capital Rise.
1: Yeah. Um, so wrong. I guess... I guess the genesis of that business was that Andrew and I have always found uh, borrowing money from banks, uh, you know, one of the most painful parts of, of what we do. Um, you know, Banks typically make it a very arduous, difficult process for you and, and it takes forever. And you know, with all respect to banks and those bankers who are listening, um, you know, I don't think they're the most customer-centric organizations in the world. So, so we set up a business called Capital Rise, which lends money to property developers. So it is, 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 is an alternative lender for want of a better word. We are competing against the banks to lend money and give money to property developers for their projects. And because of our you know, sort of long experience of doing this, we're able to structure our deals in a much more entrepreneurial way. Uh, we're able often to give a little bit more leverage. Uh, we're often able to do things that banks can't do um, and, and that, I think, has been, well, I, you know, it's been very attractive to developers and the business has grown very quickly, um, which I'm thrilled about. Um, and, you know, we are seeing highest demand we've ever seen this year. Uh, I think banks sort of just don't really want to lend to property any longer. It's, um, you know, with the new regulations, Basel three, and again, I'm not wanting to bore all your listeners, uh, but there have been since the great financial crisis, lots of regulation being brought in to sort of curtail the leverage that banks take on. Um, and so they don't really like lending to property and property developers particularly. So we've calmed ourselves out a great niche. Uh, and what's fantastic, so for all your listeners, is, is they can actually log on to our platform. It's an online platform, and they can, from a £1,000, invest in one of the loans and, and lend money to a property developer. And all of that money is secured with a, with a legal charge on the property asset, you know, at Land Registry in London. So you know, it's a very, very secure way of making money. Uh, and we wanted to democratise that investment class and allow people with only a thousand pounds to have access to it. And previously, it was only multi-millionaires. You know, like me, when I when I first started, I had to go and find you know multi-millionaires who wanted to give us some money to sort of start our projects. And and you know, I'm, I'm trying to help the sort of new breed of developers uh, to come up and and do their do their stuff.
0: So is that really where all of the money comes from? So, um,
1: uh, crowdfunding type investors or is there institutional money in, in amongst it? There's, there's institutional money in amongst it as well. So we have funding lines from various banks and sort of family offices and institutions because people love this asset class. You know, it's it's real estate, you can touch it. You know that it's in prime central London. Most people know the address, the streets that these, de- these developments are on. And you know that if you're lending 60p in the pound, if the, if the thing's worth one pound, let's say, and you're lending up to 60p, you know, property prices have to fall by 40% typically. our investors to be at any risk of losing money and yet the returns we're paying are you know between seven and nine percent on on senior debt and and slightly more mezzanine for those who who know what mezzanine is but you know so if you just want to be very secure you can lend money on a senior debt first legal charge just like a bank would do to a property developer to do his property and at the end of it when he sells it he pays you back and during that time period you are earning a fixed return of between seven and nine percent per year um so people people love it you know the stock markets done 7% as an average over the last 100 years. This is better than investing in the stock market with, I would argue, less risk because you're in the debt position, not in the equity position. Yeah.
0: So where does the company go? Where do you, where do you want to take it?
1: Well, at the moment, we're doing sort of, you know, 75 to 100 million of lending a year. And we'd like to take that up to sort of 500 million pounds of lending a year and really become a, a sort of, um, you know, big competitor in, in the sort of finance market uh, in London, and the home counties. Uh, you know at the moment we're relatively niche we're relatively small but but we're growing quickly and so i guess my aim is to you know be one of those names for that business that that you know would be on the top 3 for any property developer who's looking to borrow money um you know in london or the home counties for their projects they'll come straight to capital rise
0: okay so if i'm a developer listening to this and i've got a project i don't know 10 million quid out in um out in richmond which you think is sorry <laughs> <laughs> Um, what do I do? I get in touch via the website and I, meet a, I, I, I bring a i bring a proposal, business plan and, and sit down with a human being, do I?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we have a portal for, for developers. You can sort of log your project on our development portal, which is on the website, or you can just pick up the phone. We're very, uh, again, trying to be very customer centric. We have live chat as well. Um, and you can discuss directly with one of our um, originators, we call them, um, who are experienced sort of loan guys and understand lending to property and they'll go through the details of your project and they'll also assist. So, you know, they're not, unlike a bank who doesn't really give you advice, you know, these guys also assist. They're 20, 30 years experience of how to borrow money, how to do projects properly. Uh, and we, we also provide that sort of advice and consultancy service. Um, and and yeah, and we, we will lend money on, on any good project to developers who have a, you know, good idea and a good business plan. Well, that's,
0: I'm in the wrong game, clearly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think you're doing pretty well, Andrew.
0: No, I'm betting on you to um, to hit that 500 million mark in, in the not too distant future. So, um, where back to the development side, what's what have you not done? You know, you've done some super cool projects internationally. You do private client work. What what's on the bucket list, as it were?
1: Uh, so I, I guess that takes us right back to where we started. In in the possibly the thing that I, I haven't done that I'd really like to do is is build a resort. Uh, in the Caribbean, uh, because, you know, having grown up there and, and, and lived there for, for the early part of my life, um, I, I guess I always have, have kind of wanted to go back and give something back to that that sort of those countries, which, you know, are, are generally pretty poor, but they sit on this incredible natural resources of beaches and sunshine and an incredible turquoise sea. Um, and, and there are some, some good, great hotels in the Caribbean, but I still think that, you know, compared to Asia, that they need uh, a little bit of um, you know, love and, and they could do better. And, and I guess, you know, Andrew and I often joke that, you know, in the latter part of our career, we would love to just actually go and do a development in Antigua or possibly Jamaica uh, and, and build an exceptional hotel with residences alongside so that, you know, we would have gone full circle. I would have gone full circle and we could, we could have all these clients who have bought these fabulous properties from us in London. And, and you know, in the US, as you say, we've done stuff in LA, East Coast, we've done New York, we've, we've done all over the world but uh, to to do something really special in the caribbean would be the sort of icing on the cake for us
0: well that sounds um, that sounds pretty special and I've, I've got no doubt you'll you'll do that as well but will you ever do something
1: outside of luxury do you think you must
0: talk about it from time to time we have talked
1: about it a lot as you can imagine over the years but i think the difficult thing with a company is is you you start to build a corporate dna and i'm sure you see this in your business andrew you know we our dna of our company is to design the very very exceptional homes and this sort of attention to detail that we go to and the lengths we go to to make sure it's perfect and the way you enter the room is right and what you see as you look left and what you see as you look right you know the visuals you know everything lines up the symmetry i mean we, we go to such incredible lengths that i don't think we could very quickly change our spots you know the leopard doesn't change its spots and and i think you know That DNA has been built up over 20 years now of me doing this. And and I don't think we are the right people to do, you know, a three-star development or whatever in in the outer boroughs of London. So I do think our focus will be always on on the high-end market because that's what we know best. And and that's where we are experts. And, you know, we've got to play to our strengths. And and so much as we've talked about it, we've always decided, and I think rightly, to stick to the knitting, stick to what we do best. Um, and, and do what we do. And, and there's still so much opportunity there in that sort of high-end space that I, I don't think we, we've ever wanted for projects. You know, there's always been sort of more projects that we could probably take on. So, so, yeah.
0: Let me ask you two more questions that spring to mind. I'll ask them together. But one, who do you look up to or who do you, who do you think is a great in terms of the, you know, the, the real estate development game? And, and, and the second question would be, you know, what advice now that you're 20 years into this, you're sort of, you're in the middle uh, of of (laughs) career. I'm sure you're going to go on to um, absolute greatness, but what advice would you give to the, you know, the 24 year old uh, ambitious investment banker that's going into real estate?
1: So I think, you know, we always look to to our competitors and there's some wonderful developers out there. You know, I think Harry Macklow and what he's achieved in New York, you know, exceptional, right, exceptional and such a character as well. Um, you know, I, I mean, there, there are lots of great developers and I think New York typically has the biggest characters, you know, Donald Trump. I mean, I remember reading some of his books. Obviously, he's not, he's not someone I aspire to be, but you can't help but sort of admire some of the chutzpah of the way he's done his business and, and the way he's done things over the years. Um, you know, again, some of the big casino moguls uh, and what they've done in, in uh, Las Vegas. I mean, you know, just incredible, right? You know, Sheldon Anderson and these kinds of guys. Uh, so, you know, we always have people we're trying to learn from. Uh, and look at, at, look at and admire. Um, so, so, you know, there's always, it's always a school day and I'm sure some of the Asian developers are going to come out. You know, I've, I've been to some of these developments now in China and whilst the quality still still lacks in many ways, I think, you know, some of these guys, just the scale of what they do, uh, you know, is just staggering. So, you know, again, you know, sort of puts it all into perspective for us. We think we're doing well in London and you can go to Shanghai and feel like you're not even trying because these guys are delivering, you know, 600 units a year uh or or whatever you know a thousand units a year in shanghai um and and then to answer your second question um you know to any to any aspiring property developer out there who's listening uh you know i really would say go for it you know when i left banking um you know i had a great job at banking and and it was great fun but it's just a completely different thing when you work for yourself uh you know it's it's all encompassing uh you, you're so much more efficient because every moment you spend you know is for your benefit you're, you're no longer just an employee receiving a salary the satisfaction you get from you know being your own boss and, and being your own in charge of your own destiny um i think is just you know irreplaceable it's, it's unbelievable i think everyone should try it certainly at some point in their life uh, because i think we'd all be you know 60 years old retiring saying oh, i wish i'd done i wish i'd tried it you know so never have any regrets in life and if, if you do have that inkling just like I did and Andrew did you know just just go for it um, give it a try roll the dice uh, you know do, do your numbers certainly make sure you do your maths and do your sums correctly and really think about what you're doing but but then just go for it you, you you'll never look back and if it doesn't go well you can always go back and get another job fire us <laughs> no, i
0: couldn't resist that was terrible and uh, 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 brilliant advice brilliant advice and I, I because it was so good i think I, I, I feel like i should wrap it up on that note but before i do alex if it's okay i always play a little game with people which is our quick fire questions round okay i'm not i'm not sure if you're briefed on this you're looking slightly uncomfortable i,
1: I wasn't briefed but that's okay <laughs>
0: Oh, it's very quick. You just have to answer the question. The 90s or the noughties? Noughties. Working from home or in the office? In the office. If you had any superpower, what would it be and why?
1: To fly. I, 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 I Flying on planes is not something I ever really enjoy. I know they've, they've got slightly better. But if I could just be like Superman and one day if I needed to be in New York, I could just put on my cape and, uh, and fly to New York. <laughs> That would really make my life uh, fantastic. Bowie or The Beatles? Oh, that's a tough one. I think, I think you've got to say The Beatles. I think just because of the sort of breadth of the appeal, Bowie's amazing and, and was such a sort of unique character and, and pushed music to so many different places. But I think The Beatles, you know, their enduring appeal and popularity can't be denied. So, yeah.
0: And the final question, which I ask everybody is, if you could own one building in the world, which
1: building would it be and why? Wow. Um, great question. Uh, and one that I have never thought about. Um, I, think, I think I'd think i probably like to own something like St. Paul's Cathedral, um, just because it'll never be knocked down. It's absolutely beautiful uh, and I think it has provided so much um, service to so many people, if, if, you know, if, if you know what I mean, in terms of, you know, obviously people go there for church, there's been concerts there, there's been operas there, there's, you know, charity events, Christmas events. I mean, it's, it's a real community hub uh, right in the city of London um, that, you know, I think just provides immense benefit to, to everyone uh, who lives and, and works around there. Um, so, so I think that would be the kind of thing that I'd like to own. Um, and also clearly it's a pretty high land value as well. So, so, <laughs> so ever the developer it would be, it'd be a good bit of land to own. If, uh, if you ever could redevelop it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, Alex, um, I, I can't thank you enough. This, the time has flown by you are an absolute star in terms of what you do. And I'm speaking for your team and organization, you know, brilliant, brilliant business, brilliant schemes and product that you produce. And, Long may that continue. I enjoy watching everything that you produce and thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: You can join the DS movement by visiting ds.devilsmith.com, and you will receive
1: the latest DevCast episode direct to your inbox.